thank you very much for, for welcoming me. Uh, it's great to be out from behind the Perspex screen. That's where I normally am uh, put uh, on a Sunday morning, but uh, great to be out, out, out here. Um, be lovely if you could keep your Bibles open at Luke chapter 7, verse 36. <clears throat> I, I'm not sure if it's a thing anymore, but I, I still remember buying that sickly sweet cylinder of tooth-rotting unpleasantness that is called Brighton Rock. I'm not sure if I ever really enjoyed eating it, but I was fascinated by the writing that went all the way through it. As a child, I couldn't work out how they wrote it on every single section. Were there armies of people who are writing Brighton Rock on these little slivers of rock and then sticking them together? No, they weren't doing that. But this morning, we're looking at worship. It's almost entirely unlike Brighton Rock. Except in this one respect, like the writing, worship is at the heart of all we do as Christians and runs through our whole lives. Now worship is definitely a churchy word, uh, isn't it? Depending on your experience, it could mean a whole load of different things. For some it might mean pipe organs, uh, liturgy, formality. For others it might mean guitars, heightened emotions, large gatherings. For others it might mean prayer, silence, meditation. The word, I'm sure you know, comes from the old English word, worth-ship, which describes an attitude which acknowledges the worth of another. It's a sort of cause-and-effect word, a response word. The cause is acknowledging the worth of God, and the effect is behaving in a particular way. It's a bit like steering a car. That's a cause and effect thing too, isn't it? It'd be ludicrous to suggest that you should always steer to the right or always steer to the left. The cause is acknowledging what's in front of me and the effect is behaving in a particular way. So in thinking about worship, we need to not just look at the effect, but also the cause, the worshipper's heart. It's not that the outward expression of our worship is unimportant, it's just that it's secondary to the attitude behind it. In today's passage, we see how Jesus endorses one person's attitude and condemns another's. And strikingly, although this passage is certainly about worship, there is no mention of church or singing or organs or flags, no drum kit, no PA, no choir, no cassocks. This passage will tell us not how to structure our Sunday services. It'll tell us how to order our hearts. Like the words running through a stick of Brighton Rock, worship should run through our whole lives as followers of Jesus, in taking communion and taking the bus, in our singing in church and our singing in the choir, in the shower even, or even in the choir, in our praying and in our playing. Because it is the outworking of our heart's attitude to Jesus. It's all worship. Uh, have a look down with me uh, at verse 36 in our passage today. Luke chapter 7, page 1036. Uh, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learnt that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Well, the scene is a dinner party. The guest, perhaps even the guest of honour, is Jesus, the preacher. The host 
is a local religious leader, a Pharisee, a man who was serious about God's holiness and honour and glory. And we're then introduced to uh, a woman, an uninvited guest. Now, now in itself, that's not unusual at these sorts of banquets. It was a place to spot celebrities. Uh, and going along to a local blanket, black banquet was a bit like us flicking through the, uh, the pages of Hello magazine to spot the celebrity weddings. No, I'm sorry, that's a rubbish illustration because I'm sure none of you know what Hello magazine is. Um, but this woman has brought something along with her, something precious which the others around her might have expected her to leave on her dressing table. I mean, you'd normally apply a few drops of perfume before heading out and leave the precious jar behind, probably to last a lifetime. While the crowd know her all right, uh, the celebrities might be reclining at the table, but she has some celebrity too, or perhaps more accurately, notoriety. A woman who has lived a sinful life and is known as such. Uh, We don't know what her sins were. Uh, Some suggest she was a prostitute, but there's not really any textual evidence uh, for that. Whatever they were, she came that evening knowing that everyone knew about her sins. Verse 37 again. She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, I must admit, when I remembered this passage before I read it again, uh, I had it as a sort of a quiet thing that was sort of happening in the background. The woman uh, quietly weeping, pouring this perfume on Jesus' feet, uh, doing a bit of clearing up at the end. Uh, In my head, uh, she was sort of in the shadows, and she was probably uh, a little awkward when Jesus sort of brought her out of the shadows by having this conversation with Simon. But that's actually nothing like what happened. I I wonder if she'd planned it that way, bring the perfume, anoint Jesus' feet, uh, quietly leave. But before she even has a chance to take the stopper out of the jar, she is so overwhelmed with emotion, she breaks down in tears. As she stands at Jesus' feet, she is so overcome with who Jesus is, she is sobbing with tears falling like heavy rain. That's the the Greek word that's used here. So much so that his feet are wet with her tears. You've got to cry a lot to make someone's feet wet with your tears. And that's not all. She then broke quite a social taboo for the time. She let her hair down to wipe his feet. Her focus was so entirely on Jesus and her need to honour him that she wipes his feet with her hair, she kisses his feet and finally she gets to what she came to do. She pours a whole jar of perfume over his feet. Well, just imagine yourself being there just for a moment, perhaps as a guest reclining at the table or maybe one of the others standing around the edges. Uh, What are you thinking? I mean, sort of toe-curlingly embarrassing, I think, isn't it? Uh, I know perhaps a lot of us are, are English here and we're, we're mortified when we realise we've forgotten to bring the bottle of wine to the dinner, dinner, t- uh, dinner party. But this is sort of next-level stuff, isn't it? You could hear the people whispering, what is she doing? Simon says to himself in 
verse 39. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And we get to the end of the fourth verse of this story and we've already glimpsed the worth that each of these two people put in Jesus. The woman could not have done more. Simon, not so much. And in verse 44, we read this. Then Jesus turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little, loves little. So Jesus runs through the woman's actions, but it's her heart that Jesus focuses on. These verses are about fruits and roots. Jesus points out the outward fruits, the tears, the kiss, the perfume, the emotion. But those fruits reveal the roots her love for Jesus. Now clearly, Jesus endorses extravagance and extravagance and emotion and wearing our faith on your sleeve when it comes to worship. But this isn't, uh, this isn't um, a blueprint for how to worship. It's a blueprint for what produces true worship. What prompted the love that led this woman to such an extravagant display of worship? You know, when I look at my own devotion to Jesus, I rarely see such intensity and single-mindedness. I'm ashamed to say that part of me looks at this woman's actions and my toes curl with the embarrassment of the other people there. But don't you also marvel at the passion and say, I want some of that in my Christian experience. Do you think, what am I missing? Well, Jesus goes on to tell a short parable which shows us what Simon had got wrong and what the woman had got right. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed them about two years' salary uh, and the other two months. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? There is a famous uh, perception test, which uh, a guy called Dan Simmons, a professor of psychology, invented. Uh, in it, people are shown a video of uh, six basketball players, three with white T-shirts, uh, three with black T-shirts. Uh, the viewers are given the express instructions to count how many times the ball is passed between the white T-shirted players. Not the black t-shirts, the white t-shirts, count that, focus on that. And so the video runs, and both teams uh, pass the ball between the players, and you have to concentrate really hard to keep up and just count the white team's passes. You get to the, get to the end, and you feel very proud of yourself because you go, yeah, 16, and 16 is announced as the number of passes. Great. But then the commentary goes on to say, did you spot the gorilla? The gorilla? And the video is, is rewound, and, and you see again the passing of the basketball. But halfway through, a gorilla comes in from one side, stands in the middle, waves, 
uh, not a real gorilla, a man dressed up as a gorilla, I should say, uh, and then walks off to the other side. It turns out that 54% of viewers did not see the gorilla. Well, spiritually, we have a similar perception problem. We are moral beings, and we are programmed to notice sin. People don't have to be Christians to feel bad about it, to dislike it, to see its devastating consequences. But we do tend to notice other people's sin significantly more than our own. So counting the number of times the ball was passed is, is, is like other people's sin. We focus on that and, and we miss the rather obvious gorilla that walks across that is our own sin. And Simon does that here. Looks around him, looks at this sinful woman, feels like he's doing pretty well. 50 denarii, two months wages. As a metaphor for the level of his sin, that's what... What's that to a man of, of Simon's respectability? A pocket change. Doesn't matter much to him whether he has the debt cancelled or not, really. But Jesus' assessment of Simon is rather different. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. You did not give me a kiss. You did not put oil on my head. You love little, Jesus says to Simon. When Simon measures the moral difference between him and God, he sees a very small gap. He who has been forgiven little, loves little, Jesus says. And it's not just Simon's attitude to Jesus that was wrong, his attitude to the woman was wrong too. Simon, I have something to tell you, says Jesus in verse 40. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. You see, where Simon saw a worthless sinner, Jesus saw a forgiven sinner. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Jesus tells us that true worship only ever